Hi everyone, Dr. Celine Gounder here. I'm the host of In Sickness and In Health. We really appreciate all our loyal listeners, and I'm hoping you can help us grow this community even more. If you like our podcast, please consider supporting our show. Go to glow.fm slash insicknessandinhealth and become a member today. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so your donation is tax deductible. That's glow.fm slash insicknessandinhealth. I think it's absolutely insane that we don't treat violence like a disease similar to cancer and heart disease, diabetes and obesity. The amount of resources in terms of research and government funding, and we don't get that for violence. And it's a disease that's specifically targeting our youngest and most vulnerable. And I think it needs to be paid more attention to. They're not going to get us to be silenced because our job is to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves as physicians and for those who are permanently silenced. It's not just the mass shootings, it's not just the trauma surgeons, but it really is something that from like a primary care perspective and taking care of women, it is something that affects them every day and it's something that we need to tackle and address as a public health crisis. On this episode of In Sickness and In Health, we explore another relatively new constituency in the gun movement. Doctors, what has moved them to take action? And how has having health professionals join the conversation, changed how we see the problems of gun violence and potential solutions? In 1994, Joseph Sacron was a 17-year-old boy growing up in Fairfax County, Virginia. He was a student at Lake Braddock Secondary School. On September 23rd, he came home after SAT tutoring. And I remember getting home and there was the first uh, high school football game of the year. His friend was waiting for him to pick him up. So in a hurry, Joseph rushed inside to drop off his books and change. He remembers he hardly had any time to say hello to his parents who were asking him about his day at school. He was a teenager in a rush, already out the door. I quickly answered them and then, you know, jotted out. And, you know, fast forward uh, a few hours later after the game, uh, who would have thought they would be getting a call that they need to come to the hospital because their son has been injured? After the football game, Joseph and his friends were hanging out at a park near a friend's house by the elementary school. While we were hanging out, a fight had broken out that uh, we had nothing to do with. Uh, And a guy pulled out a gun and started... Uh, firing to the crowd. One of the bullets hit Joseph in the neck. And I remember looking up as people started screaming and just seeing uh, flashes of light. And it was uh, almost as everything had just uh, slowed down and wasn't going in slow motion. And I realized that something was wrong because my entire body felt numb. By the time the EMS team arrived, his whole body was covered in blood. They rushed him to the hospital. Hours later, he woke up in the intensive care unit with a tracheostomy tube in his neck to help him breathe. Yeah, he was alive, but the recovery was long and hard. In addition to rupturing my my trachea, I had an injury to my left carotid artery, and I have a paralyzed vocal cord uh, as a result of my injury as well. For Joseph, the months of recovery after he got out of the hospital 
were almost as devastating as the gunshot itself. I had to relearn a lot of things, uh, even just some basic things like learning how to walk again, because having been in the hospital bed for so long, you lose a lot of your muscle mass. And these are things that, you know, at the age of 17, you never really think about and you kind of take for granted. Being shot changed Joseph's life. It set him on an entirely different personal and professional path. I was 17 when the injury happened, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I think like most uh, 17-year-olds, not only do they not know what they want to do with their life, but they don't realize they're mortal. Then one day, soon after he got home from the hospital, he looked at himself in the mirror. And I was... Uh, looking at, you know, the scars on my neck and the tracheostomy tube that I had. And what I didn't realize was uh, my father was standing in the corner. And my father, I think, uh, appropriately realized the look of devastation in my eyes. And he walked in and he said, listen, you have two options. Uh, You can either feel sorry for yourself uh, or you can take this horrible incident and try to impact the lives of other people. And it was really that moment, I think, which made me realize um, both the opportunity and the responsibility uh, that I had to try to give other people that same second chance. Joseph went on to become a doctor. He's now a trauma surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he's the director for emergency general surgery. Being a victim of gun violence helps him connect with his patients. He says he doesn't bring it up at first, but once the acute phase of caring for a patient is over and he's stabilized them, Joseph's personal story sometimes comes up. And when it does... I go from being this person wearing you know, a white coat to someone that actually understands what these patients both have been facing in their communities, but even more recently have faced personally themselves. And I think as you look to, you know, not just my own career, but I think a lot of people, their own professional path, the more you learn, um, the more you realize how maybe things should be a little bit different or things change. At some point as an adult, his father's words that day, as Joseph stood in front of the mirror, those words took on a new meaning. I realized that not only do I have the responsibility of taking care of that one patient in front of me, But I have the responsibility of thinking beyond the operating room, beyond the four walls of the trauma center to try to impact populations. And that's why I've been, you know, working at this intersection of medicine, public health and public policy. And Joseph wasn't the only one. As Americans have become increasingly worried about gun violence in their communities, doctors and other healthcare workers have also become increasingly concerned, witnessing the fallout from a unique vantage point. In 2018, the American College of Physicians published a position paper on reducing firearm injuries and deaths. It called for things such as increased regulation of the purchase of legal firearms and recommended that guns be subject to consumer product regulations. The paper also encouraged physicians to discuss with their patients the risks associated with having a firearm in the home and encourage safety practices that reduce the risk of injury. In response, the NRA tweeted, Someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. That communication, I think, resulted in a lot of people being uh, incensed as to the, you know, fact that an individual or an organization would actually think that doctors 
and healthcare providers that are front and center taking care of these patients don't have a role in coming up with solutions around this issue. The online response was immediate. A huge number of clinicians and non-clinicians, frankly, across the spectrum respond back and say, no, actually, we do have a role to play in this. Joseph created a Twitter account, This Is Our Lane, which sparked vivid and often graphic conversation online among people in the medical field about what it's like to care for gunshot victims at a time when it's become all too common. When all that happened, I think a lot of us realized that healthcare providers were looking for a platform to actually be able to have their voice heard on this issue. Joseph says this movement showed that healthcare providers had been eager to voice these concerns all along and be more active in finding solutions to what they saw as a public health crisis. And so what was initially, you know, a moment uh, turned into a movement. Damon Clark is assistant professor of clinical surgery and associate medical director at USC. He grew up in northwest Detroit. A neighborhood that was filled with a lot of poverty, a lot of violence, a lot of substance abuse. He saw many of his friends and his brother's friends become victims of gun violence. He says that growing up in that environment pushed him to graduate from high school, college, and eventually Harvard Medical School. As a physician, Damon has worked in Norfolk, Virginia, Detroit, Baltimore, and Los Angeles, focusing mostly on at-risk communities similar to the one he grew up in. He remembers the first time in his residency that he experienced gun violence as the person caring for and treating a gunshot victim, one of his patients. Uh, He was shot multiple times in the abdomen area and the chest area. But the thing that I saw growing up and also saw during that moment is the toll that violence and and death of uh, young people really destroys their family, destroys their parents, destroys their siblings, destroys the whole community that knows them, the schools. Damon's patient died from those injuries. But the, the thing that I remember most and the thing I remember all the time now is the interactions that you have to have with the, the parents and the family. Damon believes gun violence should be treated like other diseases, holistically, with different kinds of treatments, including preventive treatments. When we take care of cancer, there's surgery, there's chemotherapy, there's radiation, there's preventive measures. Damon says that hospital-based violence intervention programs, which provide social services for victims of gun violence and encourage lifestyle changes, these are an important part of the treatment for gun violence. But Damon thinks there's a lot more that could be done. A lot of those are are secondary treatments because the, the injury has already happened. There could be more community supports put in place, he says. These are what Damon calls primary prevention changing things in the community uh, with substance abuse counseling or job placement or improving our school systems or after-school activities. More resources in this area, he believes, would go a long way towards preventing violence among patients like his, patients who live in high-risk neighborhoods. Currently, Damon is involved with several initiatives around Los Angeles and works with community partners and trauma centers to do this kind of primary prevention work. 
one of our main projects was we would find these schools and these people that are in like high risk areas or schools and we would go in and talk to these kids about what violence really is and you know it's not what you see on TV and yet another program medical professionals go into the schools and talk to kids about different careers in the medical field I'm trying to get these um young folks to understand that just because you're at this school or in this neighborhood doesn't mean you can't get a job or a profession in healthcare. We would break it down into, you know, if you have a high school diploma or associate's degree or bachelor's or master's or uh, some sort of uh, specialized doctorate degree, you can go into these fields and we have different people from all these different specialties come talk to them. They would invite students to the hospital campus, organize visits to the emergency room, show them around the ICU, introduce them to nurses, doctors, and staff. Treat these young folks as, as human beings and, and uh, people who have a chance and treat them as if they belong here and they can work here and be professionals here. He also works on the American College of Surgeons Stop the Bleed campaign to teach teachers, school nurses, students, and parents in the community basic skills on how to stop the bleeding by doing tourniquets or packing wounds. Because sadly, those skills are increasingly necessary. Damon says there isn't one treatment for gun violence. It's a problem that requires many treatments, and he's outspoken about that. What I think is very, very important for me, myself, personally, to go into these communities that are very, very poor socially and economically. Um, it's because I'm, I'm a living, breathing example of you can get out. The idea that physicians will get involved in the lives of their patients beyond the hospital walls, outside the exam room, makes sense for many in the healthcare community. Because, like, as a medical student and as physicians, we pledge to give the best to the patient. And it's not just giving a drug or a regular checkup or a surgery. It's everything. People aren't just their conditions or their disease, they're a person as a whole. This is Corrine Constant, a second-year medical student at Howard University. Corrine grew up in Miami, Florida, and when she goes back home to visit her family, she can't help but notice how much her neighborhood has changed. Violence, and gun violence specifically, has become more and more common. Fighting was always a thing and whatnot, but nowadays it's more of like pulling out a gun and stuff like that versus like exchanging words. And I think that's why like people get shot more, people get stabbed more because like people don't fight with their words or just like have a regular fight and then squash it. She's not sure what specifically changed in her community, whether it was the neighborhood boundaries being redrawn, the increased access to guns, both legal and illegal, an economic downturn. But even without having an answer to the whys, Corrine believes there's a lot physicians can do. So if we're pledging to, you know, give our best to the patient, why shouldn't that include going into, like, their socialized or personalized and making sure that person is 100% not only on a physical level, but a mental level, a financial, social level, like, to, like, really see the patient for who they are as a whole. Because at the end of the day, like, we aren't pieces. We're one person. We're one whole body. As a future doctor, Corrine sees that as her lane, too. 
It's easy to understand why doctors like Joseph Sacrin and Damon Clark, a medical student, Corrine Constant, felt compelled to get involved in public policy around gun violence. Joseph was himself a gunshot victim, and Damon and Corrine come from communities plagued by gun violence. They feel a duty to get involved, and their lived experiences give them a certain credibility that can help shield them from criticism. However, these days, it's easy to see how almost any healthcare worker might feel they've borne witness to the toll of gun violence, that their perspective does matter, and that because of what they see day in and day out, and the emotional impact it has on them, they too are important stakeholders in the gun violence prevention movement. So just for context, I work at a level one trauma center. We get about 500 to 600 gunshots per year. Uh, about 10% of those are fatal. And so that's what we see. We, you know, in addition to the car wrecks and the knifings and just people getting busted upside the head with a brick, uh, we see lots of, of violence in that sense. This is Cedric Dark. He's an emergency physician. Cedric works at the county hospital in Houston and at the Baylor College of Medicine, teaching residents and medical students. So usually a week doesn't go by where you don't see someone that's been shot on shift. It's pretty routine, he says. The, the nice thing about trauma is we make it super duper simple so that people like me can understand it. And you essentially figure out, okay, do they have an airway? Great. Do they have breath going into both lungs? Awesome. Do they have a pulse? Wonderful. After that, then you can start looking around and count holes and figure out where those holes are. And if the holes are in certain places, they go to the operating room. Is there a hole in the aorta? Is there a hole in the heart? That kind of thing. You're, you know, cross, you know, you're clamshelling somebody, doing a thoracotomy, opening them up, figuring out uh, what you can do to try to save that person's life. And when you can't, then the next thing that comes is being able to talk to a family member about it. And, and that's one of the more difficult things. It's very easy to see somebody in an ER say, oh, you're shot, and you need to go to the operating room. The trauma surgeon's going to take you up there. Bye. You know, it takes all of, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so. And then we do our charting and we go about and see the stub toe. It's a lot harder when you have to walk into a room and speak to a parent and say their kid has just been killed. You know, having never seen that person before in your life, you know, have to instantaneously try to make some kind of connection with them and empathize with them. Uh, when probably an hour ago, their world was perfect, and then now you're giving them the worst possible news as a parent that you could imagine having to give to somebody. This is our lane exposed the violence and tragedies that occur in hospitals behind closed doors. It shined a spotlight on the stories about the aftermath of a gunshot, the medical complications, the lengthy recovery time, and the suffering of the families of the victims. The movement also shed light on how those of us who care for victims are impacted and why medical professionals often suffer from their own PTSD from these encounters and are sometimes referred to as the secondary victims. It's afterwards when I think the emotional kind of trauma to us as healthcare providers happens. Joseph Sacrin again. Where you're really reflecting on what just took place, knowing that this is preventable. But it's not lost on me that uh, this does impact the healthcare community, including myself. 
Within healthcare, it's not just about emergency physicians and trauma surgeons. They might be the first to care for a gunshot victim, but they're not the ones caring for these patients, those that survive over the long haul. Me, I've also cared for victims of gun violence. As an internist and infectious disease specialist, I don't piece people back together after a gunshot wound. I manage the complications that follow. Abdominal abscesses resulting from torn intestines, bone infections requiring amputations, urinary tract infections and pressure ulcers, and patients left paralyzed by spinal cord injuries, and more. And seeing all that, it leaves a certain psychological residue. Cedric Dark again. You know, there are internists and family medicine doctors that have to deal with the long-term sequela of gunshot victims and, and the injuries that they have. Psychiatrists that are dealing with PTSD and trauma and anxiety and you know depression and all those things that are the consequences and sometimes even the precursors. As this is our lane grew online and offline, it started to attract all those other healthcare workers, not just trauma surgeons and emergency room staff, who were seeing the impact of gun violence on their patients. Um, I was working on labor and delivery, and we were called down to the trauma bay for um, three patients who were um, who had been shot in gang-related violence. This is Megna Rao. She's an OBGYN at a clinic catering to underserved patients in Maryland. Our patient was a pregnant woman who um, her boyfriend had been involved in the um, in the shooting, and she was. Um, accidentally shot as well in the abdomen. And um, we, in conjunction with our trauma surgery colleagues, um, did a C-section. And um, the one of the experiences um, that really affected me from that C-section was when we took the baby out and um, the trauma surgeon asked, are there any holes in the baby? I mean, that was just something that I couldn't even fathom how gun violence is affecting an, you know, in a baby before it's even born. Um, and the reason the trauma surgeon had thought to ask that question was because only a few months earlier, there was another victim of gun violence who um, was also a pregnant female who um, the bullet had actually hit her baby while it was still in the uterus. And so when the baby came out, they saw the gun, um, the bullet had gone through the baby's arm. Megna says that even outside of the operating room, gun violence comes up frequently in conversation with her patients. I would say probably a third of my patients um, are victims of domestic violence. And then when there's guns in the house, it's a very high chance of them being victims of um, homicide. And so it's something that I do see very, very frequently. Um, I have several pregnant patients who um, have been shot in the past, and so then we worry about um, what their kind of scar tissue in their abdomen looks like if we do have to do an emergency C-section. There are other subtle ways in which she sees gun violence having an impact on her patients' lives, even if they themselves are never direct gunshot victims. Their health and well-being suffer. When I talk to patients about being healthy and going out for walks, and I've had multiple patients say, I don't feel safe going for a walk in my neighborhood. Um, I was, you know, mugged at gunpoint, and so I don't leave the house. And so when we talk about physical activity and healthy lifestyle, it, it truly affects our patients every single day. This side of it, she feels, doesn't get covered by the mainstream media. 
and that lack of coverage has fueled her activism. It really is something that I see on a daily basis, and that's what's motivated me to go into, to do advocacy on this subject. While many of the physicians who speak up and get involved in the movement are also trained in public policy and public health, they also recognize the need to tread carefully when they step into the field as advocates. We're trained to be experts um, and so often take on that role um, even, even when maybe it's not the best role for us. So I think that's the thing that I worry about most um, is that we don't come to the table with enough humility um, to listen to the people that have been you know, living with this violence for a long time and speaking out about it but not being heard. So it's almost like we're late to the party and we're getting heard, but they've been there all along and they haven't been heard. Yes. This is Bill Jordan. Bill is a family doctor living in Queens, New York. He's also a civil servant and works for New York City's health department. When I spoke with Bill for this show, he spoke for himself, not on behalf of the city. When speaking about the way he advocates for his patients and victims of gun violence. I think the best thing that I can do is give their stories a wider audience and step aside so that they can tell their stories. Data and research are important, but data alone doesn't move people. Storytelling is important. And the way This Is Our Lane is brought to light stories the public often doesn't see has been a strength of the movement. And that's why Bill focuses on storytelling. A lot of the work that we've done in, on my team and with some of my colleagues has been around providing training um, you know, to com community organizations, nonprofits, but also to their frontline workers, to community health workers often, or peers. Um, and so one of the trainings that we were able to offer recently, and this was, you know, with um, large public grant funding, uh, was around storytelling. Most people who received that grant wouldn't have picked that training. They might have picked a training around health education or dietary counseling or something like that. Bill says that when working with people and communities impacted by gun violence, it's important to make space for them to tell their own stories. He says he worries sometimes that This Is Our Lane isn't as conscious of that as it could be. I think you have to make space. When you're in a position of power, you have to give up some of that power. I think that's the only way. Yes, Bill says. As medical professionals, we should write op-eds and editorials, which he does. Yes, we should organize violence prevention summits to connect professionals in the field with the communities they serve, which he also does. And yes, we should show up to marches and demonstrations, as he does. But what Bill says This Is Our Lane should also be doing is to allocate resources to elevate the voices of those most impacted, to support them in telling their own stories. I think it's giving credit, you know, when you hear a story to the person that told it and directing people back to them mm -hmm. so that they can learn more mm -hmm. directly from that person. Bill also advocates within the medical profession, often speaking with his own colleagues about the problem and potential solutions to gun violence. The medical profession, historically more male, white, wealthy, and with a lot more privilege than the communities it serves, has many blind spots and unconscious biases. This, Bill says, sometimes makes it harder to convince his colleagues that the same social drivers of health are also at the root of the gun violence problem in America. 
walking into that space and trying to convince my colleagues that as doctors, we should be pushing for more investment in communities. When he hears colleagues begin to make arguments that explain gun violence as something that happens to bad people, he tries to nudge them to consider the problem from a different angle, to look at the broader context. You know, as a good doctor, we're always encouraged to have a differential diagnosis. Well, what else could be going on? This Is Our Lane has been subject to criticism from outside the medical field as being exclusive, leaving out other stakeholders, whether it's affected communities or gun owners. But Cedric Dark, he's a gun owner. I'm not someone to be afraid of firearms or to say that everybody with a firearm is crazy or a gun nut or anything like that. A lot of the nurses and docs that I work with have firearms, will go shooting, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's not so much a sport for me, but for others it is. And I totally understand that and I respect that. You know, perception uh, is not always reality. And the intent is to uh, include uh, all folks, not just doctors. Uh, in fact, we have many active nurses, uh, social workers, gun owners that feel passionate about this issue. Joseph Sacron insists This Is Our Lane is meant to be as inclusive as possible and aims to help people within and outside medicine find common ground. Because we understand that it requires numerous stakeholders with numerous perspectives to actually be able to solve this problem. Anyone that thinks they can do it on their own either don't really understand the issue or they're not serious about moving the needle forward. Moms, students, veterans, and healthcare providers have all joined the gun violence prevention movement. But what about the people who've been advocating for change all along? The neighborhoods where gun violence is a daily affliction. The pastors who've taken to walking the streets at night, reaching out to local youth before it's too late. The educators trying to break the school-to-prison pipeline. The mothers who are organizing their communities to address the root causes of violence. In our second-to-last episode of the season, we'll hear from the advocates who've been there all along. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health. In Sickness and in Health is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Virginia, Laura, and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by The Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks also to Bria Fisher, Shannon Fay, Hussein Lalani, and Gilead Lancaster, who also spoke to me for this episode. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast, how to engage with us on social media, and how to become a member and support the podcast at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.